from the Shomogenzo collection, True Down Line, case 56. The main case. Guishan said to Yang Shan, I have a lay student who gave me three rolls of silk to buy a temple belt in order to bestow happiness upon the people of the world. Yang Shan said, when the lay student brought the silk for the temple belt, what did you give him in return? We shall hit the city platform three times and said, this was my offering. Yangshan said, if you offered him this, how would it benefit him? We shall again hit the platform three times and said, why is it that you dislike this? Yangshan said, it's not that I dislike it. It's just that this gift belongs to everyone. And Grishan said, Since you know it belongs to everyone, why did you want me to repay him? Yangshan said, I just wondered how you understood that since it belongs to everyone, you could still make it a gift. Grishan said, Don't you see? The great master Bodhidharma who came to this land from India also brought a gift. We are always receiving gifts from others. Commentary. Giving and receiving are non-dual. Self and other are non-dual. When the way is surrendered to the way, you entered the way. In enlightenment, the way invariably comes through itself. The self gives itself for the sake of giving the self. It is purposeless. Others give for others for the sake of giving the other. There is no intention. Spiritual teachings and material wealth are also non-dual. The practices of giving as well as receiving should always be in accord with the need and the imperative of time, place, position and degree. To build a bridge, cook a meal, or make an offering is the practice of giving. Loving a mountain, eating a meal, or receiving an offering is the practice of receiving. When such actions are without design, both giver and receiver are united in a single, invisible, indivisible thusness. The capping verse. The great earth innocently nurtures the flowers of spring. Birds trust freely the strength of the wind. All of this derives from the power of giving, as does the self coming into being. week we weren't here and Keiichi gave a talk and I want to thank you for that about uh, the rise of madness we're experiencing across the country there seems to be a, a momentum pickup in this I think we as human beings we experience that 
at different times. We go between bad and worse, and back to bad. And Kitchi also touched on, on really the need to, to look within, to, to verify, to clarify where does it come from. Right? Pointing back to our to the most essential part of our practice, Zazen. This is a place where we cook it all. It's a furnace that accepts everything and burns everything. Until nothing remains. All the urges to act insanely, they all come from there. And if we take the time to, as I mentioned this morning, to study the self and to forget the self, And then to be verified by all things, to find the true self in all things. Then we start to make a connection between the madness within and the madness without. We begin to see that madness is madness. Has no owner has no face. It just shows up. And it shows up when we don't take responsibility. But maybe it shows up, it's showing up so we are reminded to take responsibility. There's a story about Tong Shan, founder of Sotozen who was once doing some work with one of his students, and the students saw two birds fighting over a worm or something. And he asked Dongshan, why does it come to that? And Dongshan said, for your sake. For our sake. So, all this madness doesn't necessarily need to be defined as bad and not good. It could be seen as a, as a reminder, as an incentive, if we need incentives, to do the work. To look for the source of this. To not separate between the others who act this way and us who are not. Again, madness is madness and wisdom is wisdom. Not personal. So we are a few days away from the busiest travel day of the year, where people come together, travel all across the country, so they can spend a little time with friends, family. It takes time to 
appreciate each other, to show gratitude, appreciation to one another, to just be together. I think it's the only holiday that was not hijacked by buying or selling something, or maybe turkeys. The only thing we buy, but there's no, you're not expected to show up with a gift. You just expect it to show up, just as you are. Right? It's a, the idea behind it is to actually celebrate appreciation and gratitude. It doesn't always work that way, because we go back to families and then all the other stuff from the past comes back and we end up dealing with that, but still, there's always the possibility that this year could be different. That this year we'll pay more attention to what it's about, or what it could be about, without looking at what started this holiday. That's another talk. But to take the opportunity to appreciate. But what is appreciation? How do we understand giving and receiving? Is it enough to just show up at a family event or gathering with friends? Is there anything else I need to do when I'm there? Or other things I should not do when I'm there? And this, of course, ties directly with the practice of humility. I thought it would be good to look at it through this con and then through some of Dogen's words. So conventionally, the words giving, receiving, and that which is being given, that which is exchanging hands, they all represent fixed positions in our minds. I'm the one who's giving. This one is receiving, and this is what is being given. And each one of those points, of course, we associate that with different things. Right? We, we assign meaning to each of the positions. And then, by doing so, the conceptual minds paint the giver, the gift, and the receiver with preconceived ideas. And doing that perpetuates expectations, disappointments, and more than that, it feeds a contractual relationship. That relationship, of course, bears weight on how people relate to one another. Right? We just a simple stop at a store to buy a cup of coffee. Just that, we actually believe that this encounter is only about giving the money, getting the coffee, saying goodbye, and going away, right? One coffee to go, please. Here's five bucks. Thank you very much. Have a nice day. And it happens so often, we don't even recognize the missed opportunity to actually give 
and receive that with which cannot exchange hands. That which does not begin with walking into a store and asking for a commodity, receiving it, walking away. There is something that is always being given, being received. And this is what we need to wake up to. Wake up to then, of course, a body. In conventional way of giving, receiving, we build walls between walls of here is what I represent, here is what you represent. And you stay over there, I want to stay here so we can keep the game going. Move the economy. Right? It works. On that aspect, it works. Is that all there is? So the, the responsibility to take down the wall is on us. Only on us. Regardless of how the other actually perceives it or receives it. It doesn't really matter. Even if, and most times people do put up walls, even if another person puts up a wall. If you take down your wall, there's already one less wall separate. And that's a lot. Half separation. Only that. That can actually encourage the other to do the same. Maybe not take down the wall, maybe open up a window. That's the beginning. And that works. That invites a non-contractual connection, relationship. Even if it's a one-minute connection, you'll never know how, what kind of impact it will have on the world. Nor should you know. We do know what kind of impact we have on the world when we don't do that. So we have to take the initiative to do something different. Even with stopping for a cup of coffee to make a direct connection with the other person. Bodhisattva is the one who actually makes the first step, takes the initiative to step out of the boundaries of convention and offer others what they need, not what they want. Often grumpy people don't want you to be nice, right? They almost expect you to be grumpy back so they can stay comfortably locked into this, in this grumpy state of being. But it doesn't matter. 
sometimes I, I meet people and I haven't seen for a while on the Aikido realm. They offer the hand to shake my hand. I just push it away and give my hug. I don't care. I don't care that they're disappointed that I didn't shake their hands. I want to hug them. That's it. So we have to do things differently if we want to create different kind of world, different energies, rather than just wait and hope that it's going to happen by itself. To be proactive, not just reactive. In the seminar I went to last, we went to last weekend. My teacher was talking about it in, in relation to how we, well, some of you understand Luke and Nagel, but the person who is being attacked, it's not just, you're not just defending, you're actually attacking back as you enter. So there is a proactive taking care of the situation, taking charge of the situation, not for hurting the other person, obviously, but for taking charge. You're not just defending, you are moving in, you're entering. You're taking command of the moment with different kind of energy. And I thought about it in relation to our practice, it's very fitting. Otherwise, because we just sleepwalking through life, hoping, waiting fantasizing about a different world, different time. So to take down the walls, right? So because when the walls disintegrate, then we realize that a cup of coffee is just a vehicle for sharing our hearts with another human being. It's just an excuse to actually connect with another person. To give something beyond the five dollars and to be open to receive. And if what you receive is, is grumpy look, then appreciate that. Of course, don't appreciate. But appreciate that, appreciate that this person at that moment is somewhat stuck. Not wanting to be stuck, but just stuck. But if you appreciate that and if you embrace it, rather than react to it, what happens to this energy? It doesn't meet adversary. Right? It doesn't meet opposition. It goes into nothing. And it loses momentum. So maybe the next person in line will benefit from that, not you. Right? But it doesn't matter. Still, taking the initiative to act differently.
share the Dharma with everyone. And it's how the self awakens to itself. In one of his sermons, the Buddha spoke about sharing and said, If beings knew, as I know, the results of giving and sharing, they would not eat without having given, nor would the state, sorry, they would not eat without having given nor would the stain of meagerness overcome their minds. Even if it were their last bite, their last mouthful, they would not eat without having shared, if there was someone to receive it as a gift. But because beings do not know, as I know, the results of giving and sharing, they eat without having given. The stain of meagerness overcomes their minds. Now he's talking about food, but obviously he's not talking about just that. He's talking about state of mind, state of being, where we understand that the Dharma belongs to everyone. We also understand that most don't, don't know and don't understand that the Dharma belongs to everyone. And so you may be the only one in a crowd that understands that. And you may be the only one in a crowd that can give voice to that understanding. But again, so what? It means the responsibility is on you at that time. And when we take precepts, we vow to give freely, to not be withholding. Which is not a vow to be a good and generous person. It only means to recognize the inner forces that create an imagined barrier between ourselves and others and then to constantly work on subduing these forces. Then generosity, kindness, goodness, naturally flow up. Generosity is an essential aspect of the awakening process. It propels us to deepen and it comes out of awakening. So either way, no matter where we think we are on the practice, on the path, no matter how far we think we've come, we have to tend to that on a regular basis. Or at least look at how we stifle it. We don't have to look at how we can become generous as much as how we stifle that natural law of energy. And we don't have to look too far to realize that there is a hidden self there that doesn't like that. That feels as if it will lose something as if it, there is a limited amount of whatever it is that I need to offer. I'll offer a little bit today and then keep some for tomorrow or for other people. But the fact is, the more 
we are united with that, those energies, the more there is to give. But then we're tired, we're hungry, we're fed up, we feel jaded maybe, disappointed, all those get in the way. They get in the way only if the attention goes there. But if the attention is gently being pushed back to staying steadily on the, on the path, those don't have as much power. They just lose the power. And when those energies lose the power, there is something else that gains power. Starving one thing is feeding another. And feeding one thing is starving the other. There's no, there's no in-between. There's no waiting, basically. Because if we're not acting this way, we're acting in different ways. If we're not generous, we're stingy. And I think we know that there's just so much joy that comes from sharing with others. If we really look honestly, deeply, we see it. We know it. I think everybody knows it. We all know it's better than it feels better than grasping and accumulating. At the end of the day, sit on a pile of whatever, money, assets, stuff. You don't feel better. Holding doesn't make us feel better. Make us feel more detached, more disconnected, less content. And yet we do it. We do it. There's an energy in us that encourages actually to contract rather than to expand, to build walls rather than to build bridges, and to divide rather than to unite. There is that. That's why we practice. To recognize it and to do something about it. So in the eight great precepts, we vow to share generously, right? To not cultivate a possessive mind. To not cultivate possessive mind. Just that line by itself, we have to look at the way we live and the way we act and the way we think, the way we speak. Because often the way we do those things is cultivating possessive mind. And when we look at it, we actually have a chance to stop doing it, do something else. So we vow to recognize no fixed self, right? To recognize that there is no fixed self is to realize that nothing can grasp. It can be grasped. And from that realization, 
the door opens. And it happens naturally. Right? As, in, as in the saying, when self and other are dropped, generosity is boundless. Generosity is all that's left. In this koan, Guishan said to Yangshan, don't you see? The great master Bodhidharma who came to this land from India also brought a gift. We're always receiving gifts from others. And the footnote says, heaven is filled with it, earth is covered by it. The hand that gives is also the hand that receives. Non-dual is non-dual. But again and again, non-dual means no self. That's where everything stops. Because that's the price often we're not willing to pay. And the letting go of that is feels as if it's the greatest letting go ever. And it does feel this way. The irony in this is that until we actually let go, we don't know that there is nothing to let go of. So we have to, it does feel like we are chopping off an arm. And there is that pain. Or terrifying pain, right, from doing that. But even, there's no way to skip that. We have to go through that in order to realize that essentially nothing is being let go of. You have a shortcut, then let me know because I haven't come across that yet. So we do have to feel the pain. And in a way, maybe saying goodbye forever. Saying goodbye to everything we we know, essentially. Everything we think. Everything that can be thought of needs to be let go of. Because this is where we get caught up, at that level. And this is how we feed it. And it doesn't mean more than just when the thought arises. Just acknowledge it, as we do on the cushion. And then move your attention away from it to what's going on. In sitting is the breath. Everyday life, moment by moment, is what's going on. The moment, the situation, the person you are interacting with, or whatever else is going on. Essentially, it doesn't mean more than that. But that has to happen over and over and over and over again to a point that you forget about letting go. It's the shedding and then the shedding of wanting to shed, and then the shedding of wanting to shed, and on and on and on and on. Let go of letting go. Footnote says it's boundless, but it's a dharma that is boundless. And to encounter the dharma, we have to, as Dogen said, forget the self. And then be verified by the $10,000, right, as it says, which means everything. 
when we don't know who we are, we find ourselves everywhere. We are everything. But when we know who we are, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes I fit, sometimes I don't fit. What do I do when I don't fit? Go somewhere else. But does that work? The problem is not with what we encounter, the problem is with how we meet it and the solution. Dharma said, the Dharma includes no being because it is free from the impurity of being. And the Dharma includes no self because it is free from the impurity of self. Those wise enough to believe and understand this truth are bound to practice according to the Dharma. And since that which is real includes nothing more but grudging, they give their body, life, and property in charity without regret, without the vanity of giver, gift, or recipient and without the bias of attachment. And to eliminate impurity, they teach others, without becoming attached to form. Thus, through their own practice, they're able to help others and glorify the way of enlightenment. And as we charity, they also practice the other virtues. But while practicing the virtues to eliminate delusions, they practice nothing at all. And he says that's what is meant by practicing the Dharma. But to practice the Dharma is to share the Dharma. How else would we practice it? I got my Dharma, you got yours, you later. Let's compare which one is more valuable. To dive into the Dharma is to take down all the walls. All the walls. So in this dialogue, in this case, Guishan said to Yangshan, began by saying, I have a lay student who gave me three rolls of silk to buy a temple bell in order to bestow happiness upon the people of the world. Back then, I assume gifts were given, so then they would sell them and then buy, in this case, a temple or other things they needed at the monastery. So people would give whatever they have, whatever they do. This guy must have been in the silk business, so. We give what we have, we give what we can to sustain. But to sustain the monastery, why would somebody do that? What do we do in practice? There is, when somebody gives to a monastery, obviously there is, unless they want something back, uh, there is understanding, and understanding that what's happening in practice places or practice centers is essential to the world, is what the world needs. Right? So then we want to help it. And if we really understand, we understand that by helping it, we help everything, including this one here. Not because it feels good. Because sharing is a fundamental way of being. 
with the world so it can permeate, right? As Grishan says, to bestow happiness upon the people of the world. Maybe the word happiness can be seen more as inner contentment, a state of being at ease, a state from which you don't go out there and kill other people because you don't need to, because you're at ease. And even if you're not at ease, you know that at easement is just covered up momentarily by habits, habitual way of thinking. That's all. Not a reason to go and harass somebody, bug somebody. to bestow inner contentment. How do we bestow inner contentment? How does one bestow that on another? Can you give it to someone? Can that exchange hands, change hands from one to another? one way to do that, and that's to turn, you yourself turn to the Dharma. You yourself realize it. And the more you realize, the more it emanates. It just comes out. It shines through. And by shining through, it's awakening the same in another. Only through realizing, only through being in alignment with it. And then we realize that it is, the Dharma is a source of unending contentment. But nobody owns it. There's no institution that can claim ownership of the Dharma, obviously. Right? So, how do you make it a gift? So you feel it, you sense it. How do you, not just by feeling it, how else can you make it a gift? Now, this is the most, most important aspect of this koan, and, and the question it is living us with. Right? How do I, once I experience, to whatever degree, how do I take that and offer that to the world? So the dialogue continues, and Yangshan said, When the lay student brought you the silk from Temple Bell, what did you give him in return? And Guishan hit the sitting platform three times. And said, This was my offering. And Yangshan said, if you offered him this, how could this benefit him? How would that help another? And then Grishan hit the platform three times, once more, and said, Why is it that you dislike this? What's the fault in what I offered in return? Yangshan says, It's not that I dislike it. 
It's just that the gift belongs to everyone. And Grisha says, but you know it belongs to everyone. Why did you want me to repay him? It's an interesting question, right? Do we have to give something back? You're endowed with Buddha nature. Go on and sit with that. Figure it out. Is that going to work? So to take the initiative at that moment that we receive something, whether or not we paid for it, different story, but we receive something, to give something back from realizing that the hand that's giving is the hand that's receiving. Those are not two hands. And yet there is giving and there is receiving. And there is time for giving and there is time for receiving. How do you understand? How do you how you understood that since it belonged to everyone, you can still make it a gift? And the Dharma includes all things, animate, inanimate, value, despised, regardless of monetary value, social value, we put on them. First, we may want to look at that and realize or recognize if we do actually see that it is all encompassing, that there is nothing outside of that. Are we truly functioning in that realm? And often the thoughts that arise show us exactly which in which realm, realm we're functioning. Stinginess comes from a different realm. And we give it. We give it through our thoughts, through our words, through our actions. We can't help it. You know, when we light an incense, when we bow, everything can be made as an offering. To people you know, to people you don't know, to people you will never meet. Still, every gesture can be made an offering to the world. And, and the thing with that is that when every gesture is made an offering, and we keep practicing this way, little by little we chip away at what we call a self. And it starts to disintegrate by itself, naturally. And then we don't know what that is. We don't know who is giving, who is receiving. We just give. It just happens. But other ways to do that, obviously, and I want to talk a little bit about uh, Dogen's fascicle that's titled On the Four Exemplary Acts of a Bodhisattva. Bodhisattva Shishobo which is also known as the Acts of the Four Wisdoms. The first is offering alms, he said. The second is using kind speech. The third is showing benevolence. And the fourth is manifesting sympathy. Four ways of giving. 
So first he wrote offering alms, means not being covetous. Not being covetous means not being greedy. Not being greedy, to put it in worldly terms, includes not carrying favors by groveling or flattery. If we want to bestow the teaching of the genuine way, even if it were upon someone who rules over the four continents, we must do it without wanting anything in return. Offering alms, for example, is like bestowing upon strangers wealth that we freely part with. To freely part with treasures, whatever we care about, right? whatever we want to hold on to, what's very hard for to give it to strangers, freely. Not easy, is it? Were we to offer to the Tathagatas flowers from far off mountain, or give to some sentient being a treasure coming from a previous life, be it Dharma or something material? In other case, the act would be endowed with the merit that accords with the offering of alms. There is the principle, he says, that even though such acts are not something that we personally own, it does not hinder our offering them as alms. Right? Even things that we don't own, we can still offer. Because the Dharma is all-encompassing. Because the Dharma is no and the humbleness of such offering is not to be despised, he says. For it is the sincerity of these deeds that counts. When we live the way to the way, we realize the way. When we realize the way, the way will invariably continue to be left to the way. When treasures are left to being treasures, such treasures will invariably end up as alms offering. We bestow self on ourselves, and we bestow other on others. So even, even that, even living in the realm of self and other, we can still bestow self on the self and other on the other. Even in that, we can transcend the separation. And it says the influence of this offering of arms not only penetrates far into the realms of those in lofty positions and those who are ordinary people, but also permeates the realms of the wise and the saintly. This is because when people have become capable of accepting an offering of arms, they have therefore already formed the link with the Lord. So then he says, providing a ferry or building a bridge as alms, offering creates a way to the other shore. Any offering, any offering actually already shows that this shore is the other shore. So to take the responsibility, to take the initiative is to not wait for anything to bring us to the other shore, but to actually recognize that this is the other shore. Although it doesn't always feel this way. Although there is a lot of madness and stinginess. Still, you act as if it is the other show because it is the other show. 
And by doing that, you cut the gap. Then he says, the second one is kind speech, means that when we encounter sentient beings, the first of all, right, first of all, we give rise to the feelings of genuine affection for them and offer them words that express our pleasure in knowing them. How often you actually feel this way? What people do you meet, right? You may not exactly feel this way, but yet to give rise, I think this is why he's saying it, you know, because it doesn't happen naturally. At least not the first few years of practice. So to give rise of genuine feelings of affection for them. And then he says, to put it more broadly, we do not use language that is harsh or rude to speak with a feeling of genuine affection for sentient beings as if they were still newborn babies. So it's a good analogy, right? How do we? speak to babies? What kind of speech, what kind of tenderness we're able to, to raise when we speak to a baby? And even when we're not in the best frame of mind, we can still do that. And he says, look at people this way. See them as if they are newborn babies. Which really means to see the essential in the nonsense. Not to get caught up in the facade. Not to see the Buddha nature in all things, in all people. To not let the eyes deceive you or the ears. How can you speak to me this way? Right now, I can't speak to you in any other way. What do you expect? Of course. Of course. When we're stuck, we're stuck. When we're blind, we're blind. So we need to open our eyes and our ears and see and hear beyond what is seen and heard. So to sense the original innocence in another person, even if they're acting in harsh ways. And then he says we should praise those who have virtue and pity those who do not. Through our having fondness for kind speech, kind speech gradually increases. Thus, even kind speech that goes unrecognized or unnoticed will still manifest itself right before us. While our present life persists, we should become fond of speaking kindly so that we do not regress, easily regress, or turn away from it for generation after generation, and for lifetime after lifetime. Kind speech is the foundation for overcoming those who are angry and hostile, as well as for promoting harmony among others. When we hear of kind speech, we hear kind speech that is spoken directly to us, it brightens our confidence and delights our hearts. When we hear of kind speech having been spoken about us in our presence, this makes a deep impression on our hearts and our spirits. Keep in mind 
the kind speech arises from a loving heart, and a loving heart makes compassion its seeds. It's beautiful. But we have to live it, not frame it. Which may mean we have to burn it. Right? It's with these books. Sometimes it means we have to drop it all, including books we admire, the quotes we love. We drop it all so, we, so all those books and all those quotes can pulsate in our veins, flow through us. And then he talks about showing benevolence. He says, means working out skillful methods by which to benefit sentient beings, be they of high or low stage. One may do this, for instance, by looking at someone's future prospects, both immediate and far-ranging, and then practicing skillful means to help that person. Some people may foolishly think that if they were to put the welfare of others first, their own benefits would be reduced. This is not so. Benevolence is all-encompassing, universally benefiting both self and others. <coughs> Giving is receiving. But not that we should give because we receive. Not because we should give because we receive, but because we understand that the Dharma is all The fourth one, he says, manifesting sympathy means not making differences, not treating yourself as different and not treating others as different. In particular, what the manifesting in manifesting sympathy refers to is our ways of behaving, our everyday actions and our attitudes of mind. Even our thoughts, obviously. In this manifesting, there will be the principle of letting people identify with us and of letting ourselves identify with others. And then, I'll finish with that. Then he says, it gives a, a quote, brings up a quote from the Quan Tzu, which is a Taoist text from the 7th century BCE. And in the Quan Tzu it says, a seed does not reject water and therefore is able to bring about its vastness. A mountain does not reject soil, and therefore can bring about its height. An enlightened person does not despise ordinary people, and therefore can bring about a large populace. You need to realize that a sea's not rejecting water is its being in sympathy with water. It's an interesting way of saying that, because a sea does not reject water, right? I mean, when you look at it, well, sees water. But he's using that because it's obvious. What's not so obvious is when one rejects another is the same as sea rejecting the water. Or us rejecting ourselves. So it's a, it's a great analogy for that. If we truly understand that is not different. By offering 
to another, we're offering to the world. Nothing is outside of this offering. And by being stingy, again, nothing is outside of that. The whole world is experiencing that. A lot of responsibility taking in this, right? When we realize this. So maybe, maybe this is one of the reasons we don't want to often awaken. We don't want to give up on the dream. Right? Terrible as it is, at least I'm there. At least I know something. But this is truly diving so deep that nothing remains. Nothing remains. All the extra just doesn't go anywhere. It's just that it doesn't cover anywhere too, but it doesn't bother you anymore. You, you, you actually do not bother you anymore with this. And you, you have a choice of over which thoughts you're going to feed, you're going to look at, you're going to bring into words and actions, and which you're not. This is, this is why bodhisattvas vow to practice manifesting sympathy. And to do so, they need, they need but face all things with a gentle demeanor. To, to be gentle, to be kind. To make that choice. And not to hope that kindness will show up. Or maybe not to hope that certain people will not show up for Thanksgiving this year. This is, this is an important time, it could be, a transformative time. If we don't do what we have been doing, maybe up to now. So maybe you all realize it, this Thanksgiving, and for the rest of our lives. Maybe we all realize it and actualize so maybe in five, ten years, something will change. Or maybe it will not change. Maybe things will get worse. You don't know, and it doesn't matter. All we need to know is what we practice and how to practice. Let everything else happen.